We'd like to welcome you, and if you are visiting with us and have gotten one of those visitor's packets, there is an attendance card in there. If you will pass that toward the aisle, we'll pick that up for you now, and we'll have a record of your attendance. And we are grateful once again to have you with us. Uh, this morning, as we look at kind of what my job and Michael's job is, before we get too far into that, let me uh, tell you the epiphany I had this week. I'm not nearly as useful as you think I am. You know, I left and Blaze went on without me. And that's a testament to you guys. That's a testament to what you did and how you helped out and everything from, from food and attendance and uh, just asking, hey, do we need this or do we need that? Uh, the artwork that was up the uh, crew who took that down for me, uh, I appreciate that and I cannot tell you how much that means to me. As a matter of fact, Clark, I was telling this in the, in the first uh, service this morning, <coughs> Clark wanted to know who uh, Allison and Nisa were as he was trying to recruit them to move to Tuscaloosa and do all of his artwork uh, around his place and I told him that they were not on waivers. And that they, he could be a part of the congregation they were part of. All he had to do was move out here. Uh, he did not buy into that. Uh, so thank you for all the work and for all the help that, that you were uh, during Blaze. Uh, let's take a minute and look at what I do and what, um, what Michael does up here that we get a chance to do from time to time. And look, let's look at how a sermon is produced. First of all, a sermon is not produced by having something laid on my heart. That seems to be very, uh, a very common way of thinking about what a preacher does. Um, this is not off the cuff. This is not laid on my heart. If it, were, if it were laid on my heart from God, it'd be a whole lot better probably than what it is as we look through. It's not thrown together. It's not uh, just on a subject that uh, may be hit and miss for the congregation that I want to speak about this week. It's not something that I can go online or dig through my files and say, well, I hadn't preached this one in a while. Let's, let's see about that. What a sermon is compiled by is prayer. Now, this list that I'm going to give you here <coughs> is how a sermon is technically compiled. It was pointed out to me in the earlier service that this is not an exhaustive list, and by no means is an exhaustive list. And this, the, the point that was pointed out to me was this. The amount of work and labor that the preacher's family and wife has to do with the ability that the preacher has to put together a sermon is unbelievable and is... Uh, probably the most overlooked out of all these things. Uh, and so if you wonder how they get so good, it's because of Brandy and the girls or Lisa and uh, the children as they were here and maybe not so much now. The first way a sermon is compiled technically is by prayer. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't know where that one came from. A sermon that is not prayed over and prayed about 
is not going to be one that is going to be memorable for the person sitting and hearing it. And that's the ultimate goal, is that you remember what's being said, that you study along with me. It's a, a good sermon is, is compiled by knowing the people, knowing the place, and knowing the particulars. If you don't know the people or the place or the particulars, I can't preach on what you may need to hear. A church is made up of several different people, and those people have uh, different problems within their lives, and sometimes our problems intersect. And sometimes we have the opportunity to look through God's Word and study together about those problems, but without knowing the people and the place and the particulars, you're never going to get that. And then finally, a, a sermon technically is compiled by study, 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 study. Here's what has to happen. <laughs> On a Sunday night, when I step down from here, my mind switches over from, all right, I have that sermon preached and they have heard it to this. Sunday's coming. And because of that, I have to be able to take you, or the preacher has to be able to take you from point A all the way over here to point D and hit point B and C on the way over to that in a way that you will remember and understand for the express reason of application, for the express reason of applying those things to our lives, for you to sit here Kindly and listen to me for 30 minutes is a, is a uh, fantastic honor. But without the application, all you've heard is a monologue. So without the application, all we've done is, at the best, waste 30 minutes of our life. And so the idea of study, study, study takes it from point A to point D and all points in between. And then the application happens there, there are some keys to, the, to a good sermon, and one of those keys is, do you guys understand what I'm trying to tell you? Let me, let me back up and, and restate that. Do you guys understand what I'm trying to show you from God's Word? Because if I'm trying to tell you something, it probably doesn't mean too much. However, if, if you and I look at God's Word and, and we can uh, get that point and, under, and understand it, then we know then that it's from God, and we have to figure out what we're going to do with that. You're going to do something with it or nothing with it? Uh, you have a couple of options. One, you have more than two options. One, you could just go to sleep right now and not, not even listen to anything said. Two, you could vaguely hear what's being said and uh, kind of go in and out of, of listening to what's being said. Three, you could open your Bible and study that with me, reading those things that God would have to say and how we're supposed to live and walk out the door and forget about it. Or four, you could open that Bible and read it and study it and follow along and then apply those things and we'll have taken the point and we will have them begin to do, uh, put some knowledge with that. Did you know sermons have no length? We say, yes, preacher, we understand that you, you know, you don't, you're not affected by the time. You'll just go as long as you want to. Sometimes they go really short. 
As a matter of fact, these sermons we're going to look at today all are eight words. That's easy. Eight words and you have it, right? Some of the greatest Bible stories are very short. Let's look at a few of those. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 7. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Eight words. Notice this. Here's your key to this particular sermon. God is superior to everyone <coughs> and everything. Mankind in general is suspect to take God from a place of authority where he's supposed to be and replace him with things. God is superior to everyone. Sometimes, and I may be the only one within this room who's guilty of this, but sometimes we take God off of that throne so I can sit on it. I replace God with me. I decide <coughs> that I want to make this decision and I want to live this way and I want to do this thing because it pleases me. And I've taken God off of the throne and put someone else on there. As a matter of fact, in 1 Samuel chapter number 8, we read about the Israelites doing that. You remember the Israelites come to, to Samuel and they say to Samuel, give us a king. You remember that next phrase? Like everybody else. This is not a trick question, but it might require just a, a moment's worth of thought. Did Israel have a king? Absolutely. They were what we would look at in, in historical terms as a theocracy. Their king was God. And what they said is, we want to take God off of this throne and put him over here somewhere. And what we want to put on that throne is a guy. We want something like everybody else. Now, let me say this to you, and let me say this very clearly so that you understand this. If even today the children of God decide they want to be like everybody else, then we've got problems. The same type of problems that Israel had when they decided we want to take God off the throne and we want to put Saul onto the throne. What was God's response to that? I'm not going to allow that to happen. That's foolishness. I'm not going to, to if they want that, give that to them. How many of your mothers ever said to you, I'm going to give you enough rope so that you hang yourself? Mm-hmm. God gave Israel just enough rope to where they hung themselves. God is superior to everyone. And in that idea also, God's superior to everything. Sometimes we take God off of the throne and we put things there. Hobbies, desires, even our own family. We put right there and we say that's superior to God. God must have first place because of who he is. God must have first place or he won't have any place. When you look at the idea of the superiority of God, understand this. In your family life, in your married life, in your life as a father or mother, in your life in dating, in your life in general, you will not love people the right way unless you love God the right way. Unless God is first, all your other relationships are going to falter and fall apart. 
Because of the superiority of God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. See how easy that is? How about this one? Luke 11, verse 3. Give us day by day our daily bread. God is the provider of all things. Physically and spiritually. But where you and I want to land, even though this particular verse deals with the the physical, more or less, what we want to make sure we land on is the spiritual side. I know that all things that I have, God gives me. Why? Because I have a lot of things, and I haven't done that much work to attain a lot of things. God has always been kind and gracious. I have yet to be, and I'm 45, so I have yet to be a day that I did not eat when I wanted to. pretty strong here he says i will give you day by day or we pray to god to give us day by day our daily bread it's because god provides all things he provides all things we we look at those physical things and we see all those things that god provides but god provides for our most uh detrimental Need our, our most pressing need. God provides for that when, when no other source can. God, through his plan of salvation, has provided for us a Savior to save us from ourselves. God has provided through his plan a way that not only can we be obedient unto his plan and access the blood of that Savior, but we can sin and go back. It's not a one-shot deal. God has said, Billy, you're probably not going to get this right on the first run. And because of that, you're going to need a way to come back. Not only has he provided for me physically, he has provided for me spiritually more than just one way. More than just uh, being obedient to God and putting on the blood of Jesus Christ through baptism. And this is your one shot. We won't take a poll here, but you just shake or nod. Anybody else blew your first shot, or is that just me? Mm-hmm. Aren't you so glad, he said, that you as my child can come back because I'm going to provide for you. I asked that giver, and I trust that he will provide, and he has never This is going to be a double negative, but in my mind it sounds right. He has never not provided. He has always provided for me. And no other provider will do. No other provider has the same capabilities that my God has. No other provider can provide for me everything. Michael may decide to adopt me as his son, and he may be able to provide some things for me. He may be able to provide me with a house and a, and a bed and a vehicle and a job and food and all of those kinds of things. You know what? As much as I love Michael Cox, he can't provide for me salvation. It is my God who provides all things for me. Notice this. Luke 13, 3, just a couple of chapters over. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Notice this particular uh, sermon. This particular sermon has everything to do with my place 
and my relationship to God. God, as you and I see him being revealed through the Bible, is the source of righteousness, is the source of holiness, is the source of goodness. We look at this phrase, except you repent, except you turn and follow what he says, you're going to likewise perish, which means then the way that I'm walking is not the right way. So if God is the source of holiness and righteousness and goodness, and I'm the opposite of that, then what am I? You say, well, that means you're not the source. That means I am evil. My choices are evil. And that I am unholy, and that I, by my choices, am ungodly. And it's necessary that I follow what he says in order to be godly, and in order to be holy. Now, how's that provided? How do I follow after God other than just reading what he says? Well, well there's, a, there's an adherence to a law. When you say things like that in a sermon, what some people will do is, that's right, we have to be legalistic about it. No, that's, that's not the case. Matter of fact, that's not even what Jesus is teaching. What Jesus is teaching is this. When I love God the right way, when I decide to uh, repent and follow him, then I'm going to be obedient to his law. That's just a natural result of being a man who repents and who follows after God. I'm going to follow his law. Why? Because I have found that my law is terrible. My law, my way, uh, sends me to hell. God's law, God's way sends me uh, to heaven. If you look at uh, John chapter 4, verse number 24, Jesus uh, expounds even further on this idea when he says God's a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus goes further to say it's not only the actions which are notable, but it's also the attitude with which we do those things that is notable. So nothing else other than following God's law the way God says to do it in order to appease his wrath is going to be accepted by God for the salvation of man. Notice Luke chapter 5 and verse 10. Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Well, that's a good idea. Notice the key to this sermon. I can't make it to heaven alone. As he's speaking there to certain disciples that will eventually become certain apostles, he makes this statement. Don't worry, you're going to possibly one day be able to have an attempt to catch men. Is that right? Nope. Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Look at this word, shout. It's, it's a little more emphatic even than the word will. This is what you are going to do. This is how you are going to live. This is what a fisher of men, this is what a, a, an apostle, this is what a disciple does. You're going to catch men, which means to me, I can't make it to heaven alone. Look at the last words Jesus would say to his disciples, who would become the apostles, who, whose doctrine, chapter 2 of Acts, verse number 46 and 47, you and I continue in, or rather verse 42. He would say to them, 
I want you to go from here and teach the world and baptize them and teach them how to be disciples. I want you to teach them to follow after the commandments I have given you, which would include this command. This commandment. What an interesting idea. I'm going to teach you how to, to make disciples, and I want you to teach them how to make disciples. As a matter of fact, Paul in Acts or 1 Timothy chapter number, 2 Timothy chapter number 2, verses 1 and 2 would say this, that, that the, uh, the rotation of the gospel is this way. People teaching faithful men who are able to teach others also. The emphatic statement there in the original would say this. Who are able to teach others who are faithful. Who are able to teach others who are faithful. Who are able to teach others who are faithful. Who are able to teach others who are faithful. From century number one all the way down to century number 21. And further. That the gospel of God travels from mouth to mouth. That the good news the saving grace of Jesus the Christ comes from one man to one man teaching him how to be obedient to God and that Christians can't go to heaven alone. We had a lesson, two really, at Blaze entitled Overcoming Fear and one was Teaching My Family. The other was overcoming fear by teaching my friends. Here's what we learned in those two sessions. People sometimes are afraid. Okay. People sometimes are, are scared that they'll have the wrong answers. Okay. When you decide and you see the fear that is coming over you because you may not know the answer or because there might be some rejection that is found within the idea of teaching others, take a moment and take a deep breath and see him in the back of that garden as he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And tell me, did he continue? He was despised and rejected. Hey, Christian, what makes you any different? There's not a command of God that I can overlook and say, I, I, I don't think I want to do that one. I don't think that one implies me. I think it's somebody else to where I can be faithful to God. Notice Jonah chapter number 3. In Jonah chapter number 3 in verse number 4, Jonah makes this statement, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You and I know the account of Jonah's life. We, we know he gets on the boat and he's thrown over and he's, he's swallowed up by a whale. Generally, that's all we know about him. You know, that all happens in chapter 1. You know, there are four chapters to that book. Chapter 2, he's inside the well with seaweed wrapped around his head, stinking like dead fish. Hmm. What a great thought that is. Chapter 3, he's thrown up on the shore. That's even better thought. And by the time he is thrown up onto that shore by that well, you know what he says? I think I'm going to go to Nineveh and preach to them. 
That's a good idea. So he goes, and this sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Here's the, the key to this particular sermon. God's plan will always be followed. God's plan will not turn up void. And we need to understand that. That God's plan for marriage is been, has been his plan since the garden. That God's plan for society has been his plan since the beginning of society. That God's plan for family has been that plan. That God's plan for salvation has been that plan. And it comes through Jesus the Christ and his blood. God's plan will always be followed. Do you know how many times throughout the Old Testament the bloodline of Jesus comes down to one person? One person who, by the way, is being chased to be killed. Several times it comes down to one person, yet that bloodline never goes out of extinction. Why is that? Because God's plan will always be followed. Well, I don't, I don't know if I like this or that or this other. God's plan will always be followed. Well, I, I don't think I want to do that. I think I want to go to get on a boat and go to a different city. God's plan will always be followed, even if you smell like rotten fish and you're thrown up on the shore. You're going to do what? God, God's plan's going to be uh, going to be taken care of. Well, I'm not going to do it. Okay. You have that choice. But if I believe Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 4, and I believe and I understand that God's plan will always be followed and there is no plan B and there is no better plan than what God has. Notice this sermon. <laughs> every, every small little eight-word sermon that you and I have looked at this morning points to, even from the Old Testament, points to what God uh, requires man to do. First, God requires man to understand that he's the authority. That God is superior to all and in everything. Next, he requires that man understand that he is the provider of all things physically and spiritually. Knowing those things and understanding those things the way they are revealed, God requires that man repent. And follow his will. Through repentance, Jesus would say confession. And Jesus would say through baptism. Mankind has his sins washed away. And mankind added to the church for which Jesus died. God's plan is followed exclusively for that. There is no other offer on the table other than God who says, I can save you, but it's going to have to be this way. As I look around this particular room this morning, I see many of us who have done that. And that's excellent. And for you who have not, let me remind you that today is the day of salvation and tomorrow may be too late. 
But let me ask you one more question for those who have done those things. Do you fully and wholeheartedly believe God's Word? You say, sure, preacher, I do. Do you believe the words of Jesus as you read them through the New Testament where He says in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life, or a crown of righteousness. Do you believe that? And you say, sure, preacher, I have. Well, then, have you been doing it? Can you look at your life and say it is a faithful life? If you can, let me be the first of many who sh should say to you even today, excellent, keep going. You're a perfect example of what a Christian should be. If, however, you look at it and you say, well, maybe not so much. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing an invitation song for you. And I want you to be reminded of that father in Luke chapter 15. After those hard days at labor, while everyone in the house would be relaxing and, and shedding off the concerns and cares for the day, he's up on the roof looking, hoping, That is, son, who's been unfaithful to the family, will come home. Come back home to a God that loves you. To a family that misses you. And do that right now, while we stand and sing. Heaven.